Hello, and a very good day to you. My name is Jim Harris, and this is Heritage Bible Radio. Heritage Bible Radio is an extension of Heritage Bible Church in Boise, where it's my joy to serve as the teaching pastor. Every day, we devote our radio time to studying a portion of the Word of God so you can know Him better through Jesus Christ and serve Him better through your local church. This week on Heritage Bible Radio, we'll continue our study in Mark by focusing on chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. You may remember from last week, if you joined us, that Jesus asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they had various responses. Then he asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am? And what a contrast we see today. Peter then, who Jesus used mightily as one of his most faithful and effective disciples, whose human failures are often portrayed in Scripture, gave an A-plus answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus gave him zero personal credit for the A-plus response. Then almost immediately, Peter gives another response to another statement of Jesus. And this time, Jesus gives it an F. And if you're thinking that, of course, a fair teacher who doesn't give credit for an A-plus response will most certainly not give credit for an F response, you're going to be disappointed. Jesus gave him full credit for this one, and he also gave credit to another. Pastor Jim will unravel the confusion for you as you listen to today's slice of the message entitled, How the Flesh Does Religion. They could have said, we've heard you claim to be God. Is that true? Please explain that. Or show us the scriptures that validate your claims. It would have been very reasonable and logical for them to say, how are you connected with John the baptizer? Um, Please explain to us what it is that you've been preaching. But they didn't come to seek truth. Instead of questions that could help them know the truth, you're going to see the tip of the theological iceberg in what they actually zeroed in on. This horrible crime that they decided was worthy of a public confrontation is some of your disciples are eating with their bread with impure hands. That is unwashed. Their actual question, we'll get to it in a minute, it's in verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Now look, I hope before you have lunch today, you wash your hands. If I come to your house for dinner, I hope you wash your hands, I hope you wash your plates and, and, and all of that, and I hope it's not a four-legged dishwasher that, that does most of the, of the work for you. They're only good for pre-wash, okay? This was a question about a ritual rinsing of the hands. It was totally made up out of nowhere by these rabbis and scribes, it was handed down by oral tradition to the generation of Jesus. This is not anything that was required by the law of Moses. There is one situation in the Mosaic law in which a priest on duty in the tabernacle or the temple had to wash his hands according to a certain uh, formula. But that's not what they were talking about. The point is, When people 
are legalistic. And I'll help you define that term. When they add something to the Bible as a standard of salvation or spirituality or maturity and they expect others to obey it, people like that love to be offended. And they love to be offended so much that they sent and got a posse of theological thugs to come after Jesus. That leads us to a legalism case study. Verses 3 and 4. You'll notice in the New American Standard, and I hope uh, if you don't have that translation, your Bible does this as well. Notice the parentheses around verses 3 and 4. Parenthetical explanation. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. You see, Mark is adding this parenthesis. You won't find it in Matthew, but Mark is adding his parenthesis, this parenthesis because Mark was writing for a Gentile audience. He's, he's explaining the background of it. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing, key phrase here, the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So I want to show you the iceberg that Jesus rammed that day. Only it didn't sink Jesus. Uh, He was exposing the iceberg. It's that iceberg of many other things. Now realize by this time the the Pharisees have pulled out all their stops in their opposition to Jesus. It's it's not even a secret anymore that down in Jerusalem they're planning how to murder Him. That That was how far they'd gone. They had dropped the mask of pretending to be nice. They are barely under control. They are furious, desperate, and they are hopelessly spiritually blind. Now, what led to it, that iceberg growing to that proportion? Well, think back a a few hundred years. The destruction of the temple, 586 B.C., the ensuing Babylon captivity, shocked most of the Jews. They had just been going along with the flow. The God-fearing ones among them realized that That was exactly what the prophets had warned of. God had promised them blessing in the land if they obeyed, that they would be expelled from the land if they didn't obey. There would be cursings upon them, and that's exactly what happened because God is always faithful to His Word. The captivity was because of their spiritual departure from God, and their only hope was to, as Jeremiah 29, 13 puts it, to return to Him with a whole heart. So they endured 70 years of captivity. They knew that they had to return to the law of God. God gave them men to lead them spiritually during the captivity. Uh, Men like Ezekiel and Daniel led the way. And then in God's time, there was the opportunity for those who were willing, a faithful remnant, to return to the land at the end of the captivity. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt, rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. 
In the first wave was the the key man, Ezra. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, he is described as a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. So a a scribe, to be a scribe isn't a bad thing. Uh, Ezra was a scribe, skilled in what God said. It's what the scribes turned into that became the problem. During those days of Ezra, and again under Nehemiah, there was a revival as Israel returned to the Word of God. Read about it in both books. They, they read from it and explained the sense of it, and they sought wisdom from God to apply His Word properly in their day. Now, that's the right thing. That's the right kind of scholarship. Read the Word of God understand the Word of God, explain the Word of God, apply the Word of God. That's what it's supposed to be. But over the generations, problems crept in. Men arose, and if you'll remember our introduction to the gospel according to Mark in that intertestamental period, there was the rise of uh, several groups among the Jews, but the Pharisees and their scribes are the key ones here they began to specialize in coming up with spiritual regulations beyond what God put in His Word. Now, the original intent was to understand and apply the Scriptures. But these groups began to make it their specialty, not just to understand, not just to try to help people be wise in applications, but they began to add regulations And then they began to regulate the regulations. And it was a snowballing, if you will, ever-growing iceberg. Iceberg and snowball are sort of in the same genre of illustrations, aren't they? Uh, Among them, the, the highest honors were bestowed upon the most famous rabbis and teachers among them. And what they said, what these famous teachers said, came to be passed down from generation to generation. It was passed down through the schools connected with the synagogues that taught children to read. They would use the Hebrew Scriptures as the text. But they also taught the older disciples how these laws had been interpreted and regulated by the famous rabbis of the past. The method of teaching was Repetition. The method of teaching was repetition. Using repetition is a good way to help people remember what you're repeating. And if you repeat it enough, people start to be able to repeat it. It works, doesn't it? Why is it that songs are so good at putting things into your mind? Which is why never listen to bad songs. It'll be an earworm. It'll, it, it'll work its way into your memory. Well, the teacher would repeat it over and over until the students could repeat it back to him and pass it on to others. And as the regulations and the opinions multiplied, the amount of material that had to be memorized kept growing and growing and growing. This amount of material added to the Scriptures by the scribes, it became so enormous that by the year A.D. 200, roughly speaking, 
a rabbi named Jehuda decided to commit this huge... If you would like this message on Compact Disc, let me know and we'll send it to you. You'll receive the entire message, not just the portion on today's program. You can order by phone at 353-4036 or by writing to us at 7071 West Emerald, Boise, Idaho, 83704 or on the internet at hbc-boise.org. Heritage Bible Radio needs your prayers and your financial support. Once again, you can reach us online at hbc-boise.org or by telephone at 353-4036 or by writing to us at 7071 West Emerald, Boise, Idaho, 83704. And if you need a church home here in the Treasure Valley, I hope you'll visit us any Sunday at 7071 West Emerald. For Heritage Bible Radio, I'm Jim Harris. See you next time. Bye-bye.